This morning, this morning, we are continuing our series uh, called Death, Resurrection, uh, Revival, where we've been looking into the gospel written by John, one of Jesus' disciples. These last few weeks, we've been given a zoomed in, detailed account of the evening before Jesus was crucified on the cross, and seeing how Jesus used this last opportunity before his death to explain to, the, to his disciples what was about to happen and why. We've had washing feet, betrayal and denial forecasts, a new commandment, love one another as I have loved you, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the promise of persecution, promise of joy, promise of peace, and the promise that Jesus has overcome the world. And at the end of his discourse to the disciples, it seems that they finally get it. All the questions and confusion. Where are you going? Show us the way. Show us the Father. Have now dissipated as the disciples understand and believe that Jesus came from the Father into the world and is now leaving the world to return to the Father. Perhaps with some relief, Jesus now turned his attention to his Father, to Father God, and prays to him out loud, which is helpful for us because we get to hear it. And it gives us a wonderful insight into Jesus' heart for the glory of God, his heart for his disciples, and his heart for all who will believe in him subsequently, which includes you and me. So we're going to read John's Gospel. It's John chapter 17. Uh, it's all of John chapter 17, and we're going to read it all because it's great to read God's Word. So be on the screen behind me. If you've got your Bibles or your tablets or your phones, uh, it's John chapter 17, and it's verses 1 to 26. So here we go. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to, to, to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son, of, the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. 
I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, and me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Father God, as Jesus prayed to you, we pray to you now. Would you, would you bless us this morning? What wonderful truths, what wonderful, wonderful realization again that, that, that you love us, that you're there for us, that, that you send us, that you set us apart. Lord, I pray, would we, would we leave this place having sung your praises, having heard your words, changed and reinvigorated for you, Lord, in your mighty name. Amen. So, Jesus' prayer starts off with a this is it moment. Father, the hour has come. As Jesus asked the Father to glorify the Son, that's him, so that the Son may glorify the Father. Glory is, is a hard word to define, I, I think, anyway. But one, one definition I read said this. Glory is the revealed beauty of God's holiness. John Piper said that God's glory is the going public of his holiness. It is the revelation of God's infinite beauty, seen in his character, his worth, his attributes, and his infinite greatness. To glorify God means to give him glory, to acknowledge his beauty and greatness, to honor, praise, and worship him for this, and to make much of him. So when Jesus almost reminds the Father of the reciprocal glorifying of each other, although he is, of course, saying this for the benefit of the disciples and us, he's reminding all of us, and maybe even himself, at this 11th hour, that what is about to take place will reveal the beauty and the greatness of God. And what is about to happen is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, showing the beauty of God's rescue plan for the world and the power of God through the Holy Spirit as death is defeated once and for all. And the result of this is that eternal life is now available to all who believe. And there is a really lovely, beautiful, succinct definition of eternal life in verse 3 where Jesus prays, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is what eternal life is, knowing God. All, all the theology textbooks you can read in the world can boil down to eternal life, knowing God. You can go home now. No. It's not knowing about him. It's not knowing facts about God. It's knowing him in relationship. And that relationship is made possible by what Jesus is about to do. 
and is enabled by the Holy Spirit who is sent after Jesus' resurrection and ascension in fulfillment of his promise that he would not leave us as orphans. Knowing God, he wants to be in relationship with you. He wants it. He, he knows you fully already. We can never come closer to fully knowing him and yet he wants you to know more and more and more of the extent of his love for you. Eternal life begins now. For most of you in this room, you, you are living eternal life. You have the Holy Spirit living within you. You're in relationship. You're in communion with God. You're living eternal life now, which will continue on through death to infinity and beyond. Come on. <laughs> Get Toy Story in there. Jesus goes on to pray for his disciples in verses 6 to 19, and then for those who will follow him after his disciples from verse 20 onwards. But I think it's fair to say that what Jesus prays for his disciples in 6 to 19 applies to us as well. As Jesus prays in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, I do not ask this for my disciples only, but I ask also for those who will believe in me through their word. So today I'm going to look at two main things, two points, with some sub-points, I'm cheating, but you've got two main points. Those two points are, as a heads up, we are set apart and we are sent to play our part. So we are set apart. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, we are set apart. Two ways that we are set apart. We are not of this world. Jesus tells his disciples and therefore tells us that they and we are not of this world. Verse 16, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. And it's a reminder of what Jesus had already said earlier in the evening, in John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We are set apart from this world, and yet we remain a part of the world. Jesus very deliberately say, says and prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. We are to remain a part of this world for a reason, which we'll get to later. That's the sent bit. But for now, what are the implications for us, for you, of being set apart from the world that you live in? Of you not being in the world? Many of you will have heard the phrase that we are in the world, but not of the world. So as a slightly frivolous, frivolous example, uh, for me, I've learned not to get too upset when Everton lose. Sadly, I, am, I have the, the unfortunate uh, privilege with Mike, and Matt as well, it's free from the room, of supporting Everton, which means that you get used to losing, really. Um, but I've learned not to, not to care as much as I used to. I used to get upset. I used to be allowed to affect my weekend if we lost, or indeed if we won. But I've learned to not to do that, not to do that as much anymore. What things are you involved in? What are you exposing your heart and mind to? Where have you become numb and maybe desensitized to that which doesn't honor God? Jesus' prayer for the Father to protect his followers is a beautiful reminder of his care and love for those who follow him. But it also reveals to us that we're going to need God's protection. 
And any sense that we can work it out on our own and get by by ourselves, I'll cope, it's okay. That's foolhardy and dangerous. So we're also set apart in truth. Verse 17, Jesus prays to his Father, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Sanctification is a big word, and it means basically to become holy. It's a process of becoming more and more holy, essentially becoming more and more like Jesus. That's what sanctification is, to become more like Jesus. It's a lifelong process. To be holy means to be set apart. So to be sanctified means to be increasingly set apart from that which is, which is not holy. I'll say that again, I tripped up. To be sanctified means to be increasingly set apart from that which isn't holy. The good news is that we are saints. Those of you who have given your life to Jesus are saints. You are holy ones. The Apostle Paul, in the introduction to the different letters he writes, often addresses the saints. You are a saint. You are a holy one. And this is not an achievement of your own efforts. You've not climbed the stairway of sanctification to the pinnacle of holiness where you can give yourself a pat on the back, which is pride, so you've fallen down already. You are a holy one by virtue of what Jesus did on the cross for you, who just hours after this prayer went to the cross and gave up his life to take on himself all the sin, all the shame, all the guilt and rubbish of the world, so that whoever believes in him will be set free from all that. And because Jesus rose from the death, thereby defeating it, we get to have new eternal life, which means relationship with God. And even, even, even better than that, we are given, we are given the righteousness of Christ. We are given the righteousness of Jesus. And Paul explains this amazing truth in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, where he says, for our sake, for your sake, he made him, he made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, so that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of Christ, of God, sorry, I got the wrong, that we might become the righteousness of God. When God sees us, he sees us as righteous, as holy, because he sees us through the lens of Jesus. That is great news. That is great news. We are called to be set apart in the truth. Truth feels like an increasingly rare and compromised commodity nowadays. Half-truths, twisted truths, and barefaced lies, which is the new norm, it feels like. But then maybe it's not the new norm. Maybe it's always been that way. In Jesus' day, it probably wasn't that different. Truth has been under attack right from year dot, when Adam and Eve were deceived in the Garden of Eden. In the words of the question that Pontius Pilate asked Jesus only hours later, what is truth? Jesus stands firm on what truth is. In verse 17, your word is truth. God's word is truth. This book is truth. Truth doesn't change with time. It's timeless. God's word is timeless. It's all too easy to let, to let God's truth be eroded, be compromised, be sidelined without our even noticing it sometimes. So, our new daughter, she's two years old. She's lovely. She, she, she enjoys and is used to uh, a drink before bedtime of warm, full-fat milk. And she won't stand for anything else. 
If we try and give her semi-skimmed, we've learned, learned this already. She, she, she won't have it. She expects milk in all its fullness. Personally, I'm used to semi-skimmed. Had it all my life. And I, I believe there's some people out there who can even stomach the skimmed stuff, which is just white water, right? <laughs> do we do something similar with God's word? Do we play down it's important? Do we get used to a light version, a skimmed version, if you like, of the truth? Do we pick out the bits that are great to read? You're a saint. But miss out the more difficult bits. There's a danger that we focus so much on the truth of our, of our being a holy one, the amazing truth that we are a holy one, that we neglect the command of Jesus to become more holy. There's a danger that we focus so much on the infinite grace of God that we pay lip service to actually following Jesus. You might say, there's no chance I can become like Jesus. It's the impossible ask. I'm just like this. It's just who I am. That's, you know, I'm just like this. Maybe that and we can comfort ourselves with the knowledge that we're covered. Might be excuses that we might use. Yes, you are covered by Jesus' death and resurrection, but not for the purpose of meekly accepting your faults and flaws. You're covered for the purpose of having a heart to go after God, to go after God more and more, to become more like Jesus. It's why he modeled serving one another, loving one another, being set apart from the world and loving the world at the same time. So I can stand up here and say what I struggle with. I can, I can give examples of you know, the, the control, uh, pride and fears that, that I've, I've had issues with over the years, whether that's two years ago, five years ago, 20 years ago. And that's good. It's good that someone up here or even a conversation one-to-one can be vulnerable and open and transparent. That's a good thing because we should, we should encourage that culture in our family. But if, I'm, if I stand up here month after month and year after year and share the same things that I struggle with, then what am I doing? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not changing. That's, that's, that's not right. I'm not being shaped by God's word if I repeat the same things that I struggle with time after time. There's a challenge here to, to be shaped by God's truth, to be shaped by God's word. We must be willing to set aside a watered-down, weakened, worse version of God's word and live set apart, live to be sanctified in the truth, to be willing to be shaped by God's word and to go after the full fat, proper version of the truth. Okay, as well as being set apart, we are also sent to play our part. The importance of God's word is evident, as Jesus reiterates several times during this momentous evening uh, that's been going on for several chapters now. The words that Jesus speaks are from the Father. And for example, he says in John 14, 24, and the word you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And from today's passage in verse eight, for I've given them the words that you gave me. He's praying to his Father here. For I've given them, the disciples, the words that you gave me. And they have received them and come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Look at what the word that Jesus shared does. The disciples receive the words. They come to know in truth that Jesus came from Father God. They believed that God sent Jesus. Receive, know, believe. Hearing the word of God begins a journey from hearing the word to receiving it, to knowing it to be true, to believing. 
This journey can be instant or can take a long time. Look at the questions that the, the disciples had still after three years on the ground with Jesus. God's word leads to belief. People are yearning for truth. I firmly believe that. People are longing for integrity. Despite all the rubbish knocking around today, despite the confusion that seems to hold sway, despite many not believing there even is one truth, people want it. People want truth. And we are sent to play our part to share that truth. We are set apart for purpose. And the purpose is to share truth. Immediately after your word is truth, comes another commission from Jesus. In verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. I don't know if you, if you noticed through this series how many times Jesus has said that we, his followers, are sent. There's many different commissions. I kind of thought that the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel, I may be the one that slips into the start of Acts, Acts 1, verse 8. I thought that was pretty much it in commission language. And that's enough, by the way. That's plenty. But, but there, are loads, there are loads of them. As well as this one, Jesus said in John 15, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And in John 20, 21, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, even so, I am sending you. We are set apart for purpose. To so go into the world with the truth, with the words of truth. We are sent to give people the opportunity to hear. People who have never heard the gospel. People who have heard it but never understood it enough to receive it. People who have received it and maybe believe in God but do not have a relationship with him. As we heard the definition of eternal life, relationship with God earlier. We can go into the world with confidence, not timidity. Why? Because we have God's protection. Because we have the truth to stand on. Because we don't have to know all the answers. Because it's down to the Holy Spirit to work in people's hearts. Most of all, though, we can go into the world with confidence because we have the Holy Spirit with us. He who enables and makes reality our relationship with Father God and with Jesus. In John 20, verse 22, just after Jesus has said, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you, he then says, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He sends and he equips. Look at what happened on Peter's work at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on Jesus' followers for the first time. 3,000 believed and were baptized and the church began. It's all about God's word. It's all about God's truth. It's all about the gospel message. How much time do we spend sharing truth? How much time do we spend praying for the words that we have shared? Truth we have shared with others praying that it lands well, praying that it lands on good soil. How well do we get alongside those who show an interest in Jesus and encourage them on their journey, trying to understand God's word, which is so alien to so many people? Alpha is still a brilliant way of doing this. It's such a good way because it enables people to hear truth in a way which is structured and they can ask their questions. And it's, we had, like, we had a person on the Alpha course a year ago who asked the question about the Bible, why is there, why is there two testaments? Why is there an Old and New Testament? What, what, what's that about? And it, it sort of flung still a little bit. Oh, I've never been asked that question before in my life. How do I answer that? 
And it's this, people, people just have no concept a lot of the time about who God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit is. And God's word to them is new. It's going to be new to so many people. And we need to be ready to, to answer and to encourage people on that journey. How well do we get, along new Christ, uh, get, get alongside new Christians so they can grow strong in their faith and be ready to share their faith with others? Are you ready to share God's word? with others because that is your calling we are also sent to play our part as one sharing God's word sharing his truth is all well and good but if in the meantime we're gossiping, we're bickering we're judging one another then it won't land the sobering truth is is that we we can be the reason why people don't give Jesus a second thought and so I don't believe in God. The calling is high. Jesus prays that they, that we, may become perfectly one. The unity between believers is to reflect the unity between the Father and the Son. In verse 11, Jesus prays to his Father that they may be one even as we are one. Unity is not achieved through organizing ourselves better. It's not achieved by having more meetings or tolerating and compromising with each other so that as church, we end up presenting a diluted, washed out, skimmed version of the truth to the world that is unattractive and has little impact. That's not unity. Unity is achieved relationally. Perfect oneness is seen in the relational intimacy and oneness of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus has spoken previously of being in the Father and the Father being in him and the Holy Spirit being sent from the Father in Jesus' name. To become perfectly one is impossible left to our own devices, ideas and methods. It's only possible if we allow Father, Son and Holy Spirit to lead, to sanctify us, to set us apart as a body. Yes, as individuals, but as a body, the body of Christ. We are invited into this oneness on the basis of the oneness of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's only possible this way. And it's made possible, and this was news to me, it's made possible by the glory of Jesus being given to us. In verse 22, 23, Jesus prays this, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. The glory you have given me, I have given to them. He's given his glory to us. This glory that Jesus referred to at the start of his prayer, right back in the first few verses of chapter 17, is the revelation of the beauty and power of Jesus, the Son of God. And by following the beauty and power of Father God, the Holy Spirit is the one who reveals and makes known God's power and beauty, who gives us a spirit of wisdom and understanding. This glory has been given to us because it is in and through us as individuals, yes, but most gloriously as the body, the church. It's been given to us and through us so that the glory, the beauty and majesty of God is made manifest, is made known to the world. Our role is to allow God's glory to be revealed through us. That's what unites us, God's glory to be revealed through us, both in our church and across all churches. What glorifies the Son and the Father is what unites us. The beauty, the majesty, the power is what unites us. The rest of the stuff, 
that can cause disagreement, that can cause potentially division or disillusionment, is secondary. It doesn't matter. So even though becoming perfectly one sounds like an impossible ask, we have been given what we need. We have been given the glory of Jesus. Just let, 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 the, let the wonder of that sink in for a bit. Let the Holy Spirit stir your hearts with the truth that the glory of Jesus is in you. The glory of Jesus is in us. Lord, I pray, would you revive our hearts? Would you break out among us? Would you give us a spirit of wisdom and understanding to see and to experience and to know and to have revealed through us your beauty, your majesty, your power? May we look again, Lord, and and see you as you are. Take off the blinkers, Lord, I pray. In your mighty name. Amen. The prize, the reward of being one is high. Because the consequence of being one, the implication of being one, means that the world may know, and he's praying to the Father here, that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. The consequences of not being in unity together, of not being one, are starkly implied. If we're not unified, the world will not believe that God sent Jesus to rescue them. The world will not know that God loves them, that Jesus loves them, that he showed that love on the cross. Personalize it. Put put a name of a loved one that you know who doesn't know Jesus, who doesn't believe in Jesus. Lee will not believe that God sent Jesus to rescue him. Amanda will not believe that God loved us so much that he gave his only son. Unity between churches is hugely important. Lots of people cite the differences between churches, the divide, the disagreements. How many denominations are there? I don't know. As reasons why they wouldn't touch church with a barge pole. But starting in our church, All Nations Church, where, where are we at? We are a welcoming church. I think we do welcoming really well. I frequently get comments from people who are relatively new saying, you guys are, you know, it's different to other churches I've been to. You welcome, you love, you help out, you go the extra mile. But we're also a church where people have been and are being hurt by each other. Being perfectly one doesn't mean agreeing with one another all the time. It does mean focusing on what unites us and holding lightly those things that, in the great scheme of things, just don't matter. It comes back to living out the command Jesus gave his disciples on this evening, this drawn-out evening that we've had a privilege to focus in on the last few weeks, to love one another as he has loved us. And this is where Jesus ends his prayer to his Father and where he ends his sharing with his disciples. Praying to the Father in verse 26 at the end of the chapter, I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The thing is, we can only love as Jesus loves us. We can only love as the Father loves Jesus if we have Jesus living within us by the Holy Spirit. We can only love this way if we are in relationship with God the Father, which is possible for the greatest act of love 
ever done. Jesus laying down his life for you, giving us eternal life, that relationship with God. That which glorifies God has been given to us, both to share with the world around us and to bring oneness to God's people. Not just so that the world will recognize us as God's people. In John 13, 35, uh, it says that by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. But more than this, so that those with whom truth is shared might believe that God sent Jesus into the world and that he loved them even as you loved me. Have you got that? I'll do that again. It's not just that people will recognize You're a Christian, aren't you? It's more than that. It's those with whom we share truth might believe that God sent Jesus into the world so that the world would acknowledge that God really does so love the world that he gave his only son so that those who believe in him would not perish but would have eternal life. We are set apart and we are sent to play our part. Are you willing to play your part? We're going to come to the communion table now. And it's an opportunity, as, as it always is with, with communion. Communion. Relationship between you and God. It's a personal thing. Communion. Family. It's a family thing. It's about relationship. It reflects a relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's an opportunity for you perhaps to, to look at maybe where, where, you're, where you're of the world. Things that you might just lay down perhaps. Things that you um, have allowed yourself to get into too much. Ask the Holy, ask the Holy Spirit to point stuff out. Just come before him openly and Invite them in. Invite them in to, just to nudge you on certain areas. Or where you're struggling with someone in church. It, it, of course it happens. Resolve to be the one to take the first step towards resolving and being united again. Maybe send a text as we do communion. Send a text. Say, you know, let's meet up for a coffee. Or, well, I'm sorry. Focus on what unites you, not what divides Or maybe just simply marvel at the glory of God given to us, the glory of Jesus given to us, and tell him that you want to become more like Jesus. Ask for more of the Holy Spirit to help you. And take on board again that you are sent into the world. There are so many, so many encouragements and commands really from Jesus that say that you are sent. So the Apostle Paul wrote this in in 1 Corinthians. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup. After supper, saying, this cup 
is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You are invited to the communion table. You are invited, if you know and love the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you had that relationship with him, if you have eternal life, you're invited to share the bread and the grape juice as family. Let's do it. Feel free.